0: Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio.
2: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keane and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App.
3: Luigi Zengalas of the University of Chicago Booth School calling for an independent commission to look into the Fed writing the following. In the last two years, the Fed has failed twice. It has failed to see inflation coming and it has failed to see the banking crisis coming too. The nation needs a trustworthy Fed to combat inflation. The only way to recover this trust is through a transparent, independent and authoritative commission whose findings are believable. President Biden should appoint such a commission without delay. Luigi, I'm pleased to say, joins us right now. Luigi, good morning. Good morning. Is this the Fed chair's fault or
4: is this an institutional problem? I think that that's what we need to find out. I I fear that it's an institutional problem more than just a a chairman problem. Uh, It's easier to replace the chairman and to sort of rethink the institution. But I think that uh, it's a very consensus institution. So I think the failures were shared and uh, something has gone wrong. Is that a polite way of saying there's too much groupthink at the Fed? Uh, I think that definitely is the case, uh, but uh, but I think maybe maybe there is more. Maybe there are not uh, enough economists. And this is, uh, this is uh, I think, a low point on the board. I think only half have a PhD so I, in economics. Uh, now you don't need to have a PhD in economics, but helps in understanding a situation like uh, the one we're now.
1: What are they getting wrong right now?
4: I think that uh, they're getting wrong how uh, unstable the banking system is. I think that uh, they have this idea that deposits uh, are sticky. And um, I think that, first of all, we have never experienced in recent time a spread of 400 business points between uh, what you get on uh, the the money market and what you get uh, on your deposit. And second, the world has changed. Deposits are mobile. Uh, They are really, uh, Google say, a click away. And so I think that uh, uh, if deposits move in search of better yields, uh, then uh, banks have to realize their losses, the idea of uh, losses, to maturity that can stay there and not have an impact, I think is is sort of a fantasy.
2: Well, what do you think the Fed should be doing? I mean, at a certain point, this is really the consequence of banks not managing their assets well enough, isn't it? Or do you really think this really lies with the Fed?
4: No, I think that uh, the Fed has a huge responsibility of the fact that they should have understood that they couldn't raise rates so fast. Because when you ra- raise rates so fast, you're going to impose losses uh, in the bond market. And who's going to bear those losses? Insurance companies? Then you have to bail them out. Banks? Then you have to to bail them out. So un- unless all the losses are among us uh, investors, uh, individual investors, then uh, something happens. And so there was an extra reason to intervene early on the inflation. Uh, they were very complacent and said, oh, we have the tools. We're going to do it. We let it go a little bit, but uh, no worry because we have the tools. I think that their tools were not very sharp and uh, they should have recognized that.
2: How much do you think that the banking crisis that people talked about three weeks ago has abated, has really uh, sort of moved from some sort of acute phase into perhaps a chronic question around flows and with respect to credit creation, but not necessarily a crisis.
4: I think it's possible and hopeful that it's not going to be an open crisis like we've seen in the past. However, clearly put a lot of softness in the banking sector, particularly regional banks, which we need to remember, those are the ones who lend to small and medium enterprises. The large banks tend to do syndicated loans to big firms, but uh, the bread and butter of the economy is with the regional banks, and and they are very soft, and uh, they see deposits flowing out. And and they are not going to make loans uh, because if they make loans and then deposits flow out, they have to sell securities and they have to make losses. So, I think that uh, uh, the first thing they do for sure is not make new loans, and then probably they're going to try to uh, slowly divest their securities when they can. Uh, we we saw there was an article on the FT showing that at the beginning of the year, cash over. Assets in banks were particularly low, and they say, "This is the cause of the current crisis." And no, no, no. this is an effect of the fact that, uh, that we have a withdrawal of deposits, And so banks don't want to divest securities at the loss, so they, what they do is they reduce the cash they have.
3: The deposits, let's touch on that. You've been highly critical of the Federal Reserve. I'll be the last in line to defend the Federal Reserve, so let me be clear about that. But we do need to talk about the role of the banks in all of this. You have got any criticism for the way the banks
4: have been run? Uh, look, I think that uh, if you don't expect some bankers to be stupid. You have not learned the lesson. And so, say, well, Greenspan You're
5: said he was surprised. <laughs> yeah, was
4: surprised <laughs> how, how little people were trying to uh, do the right thing, even if they had the right incentives. So we learn that uh, people make mistakes. A resilient system is a system that can bear uh, the mistakes of uh, individual bankers, yeah. especially when these bankers are not the CEO of J.P. Morgan.
3: If I go and open an account this morning, if we went out, Lisa and I, and open a joint account, a surveillance account, without Tom's name on it, because we know <laughs> what would happen to the cash, but that's another story, they'd probably offer a 0% mm-hmm. of one of the big names. Still, we've got Barclays out in the last 24 hours saying that money market funds could go up another 1.5 trillion. Do you think the concern right now at the banks is return of capital or return on capital? And can they prevent deposit flight by quite simply just putting up interest
4: rates on deposits? No, they can't. They don't have the uh, return to do that. If you look at uh, Silicon Valley Bank, if they had increased the return on their uh, deposits by, uh, I think, 75 basis points, they would have wiped out all the profits last year. So I don't think that they have a return on assets that justify a higher deposits. That's the conundrum. If the problem were solved simply by increasing rates, it would be easy, but they cannot afford to. So you're saying this
3: banking system does not work with rates of 4% plus. Is that basically what you're saying? Yes.
4: So does the Fed have to cut interest rates, and do we just have to tolerate inflation? First of all, I think the inflation might not be as big of a problem if we get into a recession. I think the recession will do the job. Now, that was not the plan of the Fed. It was a soft landing, not crashing the banking sector. But that's a part that they should have seen.
2: But so let's just put this in a perspective in terms of bad news being bad news, which mm-hmm. seems to be the new theme in markets right now. How much is what you're talking about underpinning that, that there is an imminent tension that's going to perhaps accelerate some sort of economic downturn because the banking system just is not going to function at these rates? I
4: think that that is the underlying bad news. Now, this is tempered by the fact that this will come with a reduction in interest rates. And uh, as we know, that compensates some of, of the problems. So I think that uh, the the real tension is the Fed will not raise interest rate more, would probably at some point cut them. And uh, is that going to be enough to transform what, is likely to be a hard landing into a more soft landing? That's the question. I think that we are softening up and there will be a landing at this point. In my way, there is little doubt. The question is how hard. Let's finish where we
3: started. The changes you want to see. The changes you want to see over time, but I want to talk about the changes
4: you want to see in the next couple of months. What would you like to see announced? Uh, From the point of view of the Fed, from the point of view of the the government? From the Federal Reserve. I think that a... CU's analysis of what are the softness in the banking sector. Uh, I think there was a regulatory failure, and uh, the, the Fed needs to own it and change. And, uh, and two, I think that uh, be honest about the fact that probably we need to soften up interest rates because the banking crisis is, is coming and try to find way to soften up this banking crisis, especially, I think, for lending on small and, uh, small and medium businesses, because those are the ones affected the most. You said be honest. It implies that they know, but they're
3: not saying it. Do you truly believe that?
4: I don't know what, you know, uh, you can be honest and being wrong, uh, and I think sometimes people uh, believe their own uh, uh, view of the world. I think that uh, I honestly did not understand the 25 basis points increase uh, uh, last meeting. I thought that was just a signal to say, I want to reassure that things are not as bad as they they might have been, Uh, was not uh, determined by the objective situation on the ground. I've been wrong before, I can be wrong now.
2: I just wonder whether there's a role for regional banks anymore, which are such a mainstay of lending. I mean, basically under your Mm. paradigm, not really.
4: No, there is a very important role of of regional banks because we know that uh, small businesses don't borrow at a large distance. They depend on on local banks and uh, particularly... Also, minorities depend dramatically on, for example, minority banks. I had a students who went on the market this year showing how important is uh, bank ownership in determining who gets uh, the, the loans. So I think we cannot say we only go with a few large banks because that means a complete change in the US economy. This was so good you can promo your podcast. What's it called? Capital isn't what is working in capitalism and what isn't. Nice. Where do I find that? <laughs> Anywhere you get your podcast from.
3: There we go. That's perfect.
2: You were that good that he basically was like, you know, go for it. You have won yourself you have an advertisement. A 10-second
3: promo. <laughs> Don't, you know, thank I'll you. get in trouble with corporate now <laughs> for giving that away. That- Luigi, thank you. This was fantastic. Thank you. Luigi Zingales there of the University of Chicago School of Business.
0: Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, Finremember, Remember, Columbus, Ohio.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: <laughs> Terry Wasman, level well, interest regret rates that. and currency strategist at Macquarie. I'm forgetting it already. <laughs> Terry, thanks for being with us, sir. Good to see you. This from Torsten Slock, literally just moments ago in my inbox. He said the credit crunch has started. He said a survey of 71 banks in the Dallas Fed district done after SVB went under shows a dramatic reversal in loan volumes. The Fed survey was carried out from March 21 to 29. Do you agree with that statement? The credit crunch has started.
6: Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you might not want to call it a credit crunch. You might want to credit call it a credit crumble. But the direction I think is unambiguous. And I would add here that it's not just about deposits leaving the system. Right? Deposits can, you know, come out of the small banks, and they can find their way into the large banks. They can find their way into money market funds. In fact, the system has a way of recycling those deposits and potentially bringing them back to the small banks, especially if the government leans on the large banks to recycle those deposits, as we saw with the First Republic situation. I'm not so much concerned about the flight of deposits as the origin or ideology of a credit crunch or credit crumble. I'm much more concerned with the regulatory overhang. I'm concerned with the fact that Congress is going to be doing Compensation clawbacks, at least considering that for bank CEOs that get themselves or their or their balance sheets into trouble, I'm worried about the the more variegated um, um, stress tests uh, stressing the banks for for duration mismatches. I'm worried about the banks going back into their balance sheets, looking at uh, very and uh, scrutinizing them. I'm worried about the regulators doing the same for the banks. I think that is going to cause an overhang of concern, of worry, of less risk-taking in the banking community, that's what's going to drive the credit crunch or credit crumble, not the flight of deposits necessarily. If there is a flight of deposits, all right, then we're talking about not just a credit crumble, but a real credit crunch.
3: Okay, two questions. One, policy consequences, what the Fed does ultimately in the coming months, and two, market outcomes. How are you thinking about those two things now?
6: So the, the good thing uh, with regard to market outcomes is we've gotten ten-year yields coming down, right? And I think to some extent that's supporting multiples. But I'm afraid about the market because if you have a credit slowdown and you have an economic slowdown that follows from it, you're going to have an earnings slowdown. You're going to have a revenue slowdown, uh, effectively a, a, an operating slowdown in, in the corporate world. We're already seeing that with what happened with the uh, the manufacturing ISM survey and the headline index when it falls to the levels it fell uh, in in the the, the March report. report, it's typically historically associated with a big decline in growth in corporate revenues, with a big decline in growth in corporate earnings. It's also associated with negative revisions from bottom-up analysts who cover companies in the S&P 500 and the broader indexes. So that's what's in front of us right now. Now, there could be multiple elevation because of the low yields, but you can't expect the market to do well in the context of, of downward revisions in earnings. And I think we're just on the verge of seeing that start.
2: Just to sort of underscore your point, do you agree with Professor Zingales that this banking system cannot handle rates where they are?
6: Uh, No, and I'm going to qualify it. Uh, I would have said something different. I would have said the banking system cannot handle a very speedy, aggressive, and abrupt increase in interest rates to 4%. If any economic agent, not just banks, any borrowers, any creditors get accustomed to very low interest rates and expect those to continue... their behavior is gonna accommodate to those low interest rates. And when interest rates rise by a lot, that behavior is gonna suddenly be forced to shift, maybe because of what happens in their balance sheets. Duration mismatch at the banks is a good example. So it's not the level of interest rate that matters. We've had 4% interest rates in the past. We've glided through that pretty comfortably not necessarily associated with a lot of inflation or low inflation. What what has troubled me, and I think what is troubling the economy right now, and certainly the, the, the credit economy, is the rapidity which, which uh, interest rates have risen. That is what is unprecedented, not the fact that interest rates are 4%
2: translate this into the global market, a lot of people are looking at signs that perhaps things are cracking a bit more in the U.S. than in Europe and that things are slowing down as a sign that Europe is strong and go into European assets. Do you disagree? Do you think that they're just six months behind the U.S. and that they're going to see the sort of tensions emerge in the economy at the same kind of pace based on some of their outsized rate hikes?
6: There's something to be said for the synchronicity of business cycles around the world. If the U.S. slows down, it's almost impossible that Europe will completely escape the the impact of a U.S. slowdown. But Europe's got a good things happening as well. First of all, keep in mind that it was in its doldrums and it was in its slump in the fourth and third quarters of last year. So it's coming off a low base. And when you come off a low base, you know, you, you, you can't imagine that it's going to be hit hard unless there's another shock. And I have to imagine it's going to have to be more than a credit crumble in the U.S. China's recovering. That's going to help Europe right? There's the prospect that the initial shock of the war through the energy price mechanism has faded. Certainly natural gas prices globally are low. Oil prices are relatively low. The things that hurt Europe in the, in the third quarter and the fourth quarter uh, of last year are no longer there. At the same time, the things that are about to start hurting the US, specifically this credit crunch or credit crumble, are on the verge of starting.
3: Is that dollar positive or negative?
6: It's dollar It's <laughs> it's dollar negative. Uh, th- there's something to be said for the idea that a global recession uh, helps the dollar. I think that's an old way of thinking. Uh, I, I think I think asset allocators have gotten more sophisticated over time. They can make distinctions between uh, growth rates and the first order, you know, second order growth rates around the world and the comparisons between them, relative growth rates. I mean, and when uh, you know we're going to start to see this divergence, indicated by the fact that the surprise index in the U.S. is heading down and the surprise index in Europe is still going up. I imagine. Uh, we're going to start to see a weaker dollar. We've already seen it, right? In in March, uh, we've already seen a weaker dollar. But I think there's room here for the euro to get even higher and break above the 110 level. We've already seen it with sterling. It got above its... uh, its, it's 2023 highs already, right? And the next, and the next, and the next, <laughs> the next shoe nice. to drop maybe dollar yen, right? Um, we'll, we'll hear more from presumably from the BOJ once the new governor takes over. But these are these are the consequences of effectively of of, of the weaker U.S. situation compared to the rest of
3: the world. Sterling right now very close to 125. Terry, this was great. Thank you, Terry Wiseman there of Macquarie. Julie Norman joins us now, the co-director of the UCR Centre on US Politics. Julie, can we start there? Just the difference of approach between the Europeans and the US to tension with China at the moment?
7: Sure. So there's a couple of things to note here. First, even though the rhetoric in the U.S. and many policies are very tough on China from both parties, you know our trade relationship is still the highest it's ever been with China as well. So it's not just Europe that's keeping that economic uh, back and forth going. That's very true for the U.S. right now as well. And I'd say even Europe is not a fully unified block on this. Macron is extending a much more open hand than his co-traveler uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who has been a bit more uh, tough on China in her talk, especially on China's approach to Ukraine. So I would say a lot of diversity between uh, kind of both sides of the Atlantic. But for the U.S., you know, I would say the fact that Europe is perhaps being a bit more open handed with China, especially through Macron, could actually be an advantage. I mean, the Biden administration has had a sort of three prong approach to China, like cooperate when we can compete when we should and confront when we must. And the cooperation piece has obviously been the trickiest of late. And if you can have Europe keeping that door open. I do think that's somewhat important for preventing what could be, again, this increasing uh, you know, alliance really between China and Russia. What we don't want to see is a Cold War that's built on a sense of grievance towards the West and towards the U.S. And so France might be kind of the, the good cop keeping that door open for the time being.
2: But what does that do to U.S.-European relations? Because at a certain point, I understand the good cop, bad cop kind of uh, dichotomy here. But this isn't something that U.S. multinational companies can really depend on. And we've already seen reports that Apple is quietly trying to shift its supply chains. How much does this create a liability for
7: the U.S. and frankly, create a real fissure in that alliance? Well, it could. But I think, again, what we're seeing both the U.S. and Europe trying to do is un- uncouple, as we're saying, in these key sectors, but also just very pragmatically knowing that you can't just completely you know, cut off this economic relationship with China. So I think we'll see this pressure sectorally, but at the same time, recognizing that some trade relations are going to keep going through. So again, we see France you know, probably moving forward on the Airbus production, on that kind of deal, at the same time, scaling back on other kinds of technology where there is more concern around security or surveillance. So I think some of that will be on par between the two countries, but Again, as this essentially you know deepening uh, rift between the US. and China continues, I do set that, that becoming a bigger sticking point, but I don't think we're quite there yet.
2: John asked me a really good question that I gave a pretty bad answer to just a couple of minutes ago, where he said, "Did China truly show restraint with the uh, Kevin McCarthy meeting with Taiwanese president? Is that really what we saw, or is there potentially more to come and potentially a bigger and broader consequence?"
7: Well, I think you were right, Lisa, in saying we heard a lot of rhetoric from China, a lot of pushback uh, in in terms of uh, verbal comments to this. And there was some movement, uh, you know, uh, one uh, Chinese naval vessel going through the strait yesterday, some Coast Guard activities, but nothing like the war games and military movements that we saw back in August when Pelosi went. And, you know, I think, as you note, it's partly because the meeting was on U.S. soil. It wasn't taking place in Taiwan. The fact that you are having a head of state visit with Macron, having a massive military but at the same time is not really the best look. And moreover, this is really a long game for China. And I think uh, Taiwanese President Tsai was very clear about that when uh, she was making her comments in the U.S. that you know, China is seeing this as a ongoing effort and they are working through all different kinds of tactics to put tra- pressure on Taiwan, not just military. And so this is something that I think is just going to be very drawn out and not just through these big uh, headline grabbing movements that China did uh, back in August.
3: So, Judy, you don't see anything big happening anytime soon from China towards Taiwan?
7: Well, I would say I'm I'm not overly alarmist about it at this point. I mean, right now, I think China has a certain interest in not completely uh, upsetting things, especially as they are trying to kind of regain their uh, position in the markets, regain themselves economically coming out of COVID to completely upset everything with with, uh, something very provocative on Taiwan, I don't see right away. But again, all of this is, I think, is much faster moving than many of us thought it would be even several months or a year ago. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think many of us predicted what would be happening in Ukraine at this point either. So... Julie,
2: do you think that banning TikTok or some sort of more extreme measure in the U.S. changes the game?
7: It's definitely putting the pressure on. I would say I think the middle road of banning TikTok on uh, government devices and that kind of thing is probably where the U.S. is best suited to, to sit right now. I think a blanket ban does get into very tricky waters. One, you just get into a situation of whack-a-mole with any kind of uh, Chinese product that might have these kinds of capabilities over here. And furthermore, it is a bit of a slippery slope for the U.S. to get into um, to banning uh, you know, to banning platforms, just as China ban- banned some of our platforms. So I would say it's a bit of pressure, but I think the U.S. is right to be taking this somewhat cautiously and, uh, and not moving too quickly on a blanket ban.
3: Judy, thanks for this, as always the brilliant Julie Norman at the University College, London.
0: Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations, look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions. So more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, Finremember, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to
1: see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm so glad to help me break this all down. Cara Markets360, Chief U.S. Economist. At BNP Paribas. Carl, wonderful to see you in studio. Your first take on the importance of some of this just drumbeat of data pointing to a softer labor market.
5: Well, as I was thinking about uh, the data dropping uh, uh, before I walked on set, I thought, well, you know, the rule of thumb is uh, if claims move up by about uh, 10% over the prior quarter average, uh, that's often kind of an uh, alarming signal that you're heading towards recession. So as I was guessing in my mind, well, what would that be? I was thinking about 230,000. So we're we're pretty much uh, right there at the the kind of level that uh, gets outside of any kind of noise and starts to be more of a meaningful uh, signal of some problems. Now, the big debate is whether it's a slowdown or a hard stop. Uh, I don't think this is hard stop evidence just yet. Uh, Also, I'm just extra sensitive uh, around uh, interpreting jobless claims in the week weeks around the Easter holiday, basically, because that's when school spring breaks happen. And often we see these kind of one-off spikes or dips in claims uh, that get ironed out in the subsequent weeks. So if, if if we're holding at these kinds of levels uh, for a couple of weeks and there's not a retracement, then that would be more alarming to me that we are starting to see the real deterioration in labor conditions that uh, could be pushing us to a much weaker uh, pace of economic activity.
2: Is that enough for the Federal Reserve to really perhaps cut rates, considering that they've been targeting inflation. And this doesn't speak necessarily to progress in the inflation fight.
5: Well, there's there's some progress in the inflation fight, but it depends where you look. And if you look at the part of the inflation basket that really matters to the Fed. So, Core inflation, and then let's narrow it even further and look at core services. uh, You're not seeing improvement uh, to any material degree uh, on that front yet, and that is what is uh, haunting Fed uh, policymakers in the backs of their minds uh, as they realize that is what has to break to really be back on a path towards a you know sustainable path towards two percent. We are not seeing that in the data now. If the labor market is slowing, uh, that is a key uh, key factor that we need to see to move in that direction. But uh, again, one week in jobless claims is not there there. Uh, we saw some cracks in the facade in the last jobs report. You saw finance actually looking pretty weak. You saw manufacturing uh, starting to look up, uh, weak as well. And so I think those trends will continue. It's not necessarily that tomorrow's jobs report is going to be the key one, right? The survey week was actually the same week that we had all the, the stresses in the uh, in mid-March uh, in, in the banking sector. Uh, I think it'll take a month or two uh, for, those, uh, for that fallout to really start to show up in the economic data. But the direction of travel is pretty clear here.
2: When we talk about uh, what we got in terms of the past week, I want to also talk about revisions. We just got those as well. They just populated 246,000. It was revised upward from 198,000. The total number of continuing claims also revised upward from last week from 100, uh, 1.68 million to 1.8 million million. So this is a couple weeks in a row now that there is an elevated number of initial jobless claims. Is that significant for you, that the upward revisions are now to the wrong side that we're seeing in well, U.S. You, economic. you data? highlighted
5: the Economic Data Surprise Index uh, earlier on the show, and I think that does tell us something about uh, how what's happening to the data and how uh, forecasters are thinking about the data, uh, right? So you know there is a moment we've had this extended stretch where non-farm payrolls continually uh, surprise uh, relative to consensus expectations, and it's been going on for many, many months now. Uh, eventually, it's going to have to go in the other direction, and I think we're getting close to that point. Again, uh, I think things were too fast moving in March for this to really show up in tomorrow's payroll print, uh, but I think we will see it uh, much more evident in the uh, second quarter. Okay, you say what we said March. Actually, if yeah. we, before we move on. Yes, if we can yeah. stick with the theme of data and revisions, uh, something that I think slipped under the radar screen last Thursday uh, was the third print on Q4 GDP, which everyone says it's a third print, why pay attention to it? Uh, but in, in Q4, that's our first look at economy-wide corporate profits. Uh, and it's a pretty uh, uncomfortable trend uh, that we see in the, in the economy-wide corporate profits data. Uh, a year ago, it was growing something like 20%, 22% year on year. In the last quarter, it contracted by about 2% uh, in the fourth quarter. So it's only growing 2% year on year. So a big deceleration, and that profit trend drives hiring, it drives investment, it drives business decision-making.
2: Right now you can see equity futures lower after that data, just marginally lower for the S&P, but futures on the NASDAQ you can see lower by about four-tenths of a percent. From your perspective, you said March, the events that we saw last month. I imagine you're talking about Silicon Valley Bank Mm -hmm. and some of the bank uh, fissures uh, that we saw. How much do you think that that really did change the landscape and accelerate the potential downturn that this economy could see?
5: Well, we know it's creating some tightening of financial conditions or or credit conditions in the economy, and it's going to you know take some time for uh, that to to actually show up in the in the real macro data. So all eyes are on the uh, Q1 senior lending officer opinion survey, the sluice. Uh, unfortunately, we don't get that until after the Fed meeting, unless they decided to publish it early. Uh, but we'll get little glimpses of what the sluice uh, could look like. There was some uh, survey data out of the uh, Dallas Fed earlier this morning. Uh, also, we have bank earnings seasons. Uh, basically starting next Friday and then the week after that, uh, continuing with a lot of the regional banks uh, reporting. And so probably from those earnings calls and the tone of the discussions, uh, we might get little glimpses of what that sluice uh, will ultimately look like in early May.
2: How much are you looking at those types of surveys and official data and how much are you looking at corporate earnings in a way that you hadn't before? Not just the numbers, but also the guidance that you're getting from corporate executives seeing things moving in real time and conf- confidence deteriorating pretty quickly.
5: In a fast-moving, fluid environment, often the macro data is slow to catch up. And so you have to pay attention on what is the uh, what is the driver of the narrative at the moment. And at the moment, it is that stress in kind of mid-tier and smaller uh, regional banks that uh, really is the primary focus. And so that kind of anecdotal data, whether it's the beige- whether it's bank earnings calls, uh, or just simply, uh, you know, reporting in the newspaper and on the Bloomberg terminal uh, about what's happening in those sectors really becomes that much more important. And that's true for Fed officials, it's true for Fed watchers, it's true for uh, market participants.
2: Given some of the shifts that we've seen over the past few weeks, how much have you changed your view for this year?
5: So, in light of the banking stresses, we had, you know, I, I agree with uh, Chair Powell's general uh, assessment that uh, now bank uh, credit uh, tightening will do some of the work for the Fed. And so, as we modeled that out, uh, basically we came to the conclusion it was equivalent to about 50 basis points of uh, tightening. So, we had a terminal funds call of 575. Uh, we dialed that back to 525 in light of that kind of, uh, you know, looking it through a, 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 di- a couple of different uh, modeling exercises. But one simple way is to look at financial conditions and kind of what has happened uh, in the fallout of uh, SVB. And what's interesting to note here uh, is that a lot of that tightening has backtracked, right? About half of the tightening of financial conditions uh, has unwound uh, in the weeks afterwards, where we saw this is not a giant systemic problem that is really, you know, echoing the the, the, the scary tones of 2008, but uh, rather it, it could proved to be an isolated or a relatively isolated uh, incident. So there are long-term consequences. Banks are acting more cautiously. I think we'll see that as a a key theme during uh, earnings season. Uh, But uh, we have to be careful not to uh, 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 over-interpret what's happening.
2: So what's the read-through in terms of the real economy and what kind of downturn the economy could enter later this year?
5: Well, let's go back to the beginning of our discussion, which was that core service inflation is not showing improvement. And we shouldn't expect it to show improvement until we see some softening in labor conditions. Uh, It's very unlikely that we can uh, walk the tight wire, uh, the very narrow path to get to a soft landing in this environment, especially now that we're saying, oh, banks are doing some of the tightening for the Fed. It was hard enough to understand the long and variable lag from the Fed, uh, let alone now when we have this kind of phantom uh, factor, which is this tightening of uh, bank uh, credit conditions. So uh, our view is that really to get inflation from the levels they're at down towards a 2% path really will take a a recession in the economy to loosen those labor conditions. You see hints of that today. I'm not saying we're there yet. Our view is more that recession would be a, a second half of the year story. That said, Q2 We're looking for GDP growth of about 1%. So it's a growth recession ahead of a recession. Uh, It will start to feel increasingly recessionary. We see it in this week's claims data. You saw it in the ISM. You saw it in the manufacturing ISM. It's just going to, I think, continue to snowball.
2: And just if you're just joining, just to reiterate, we did see an upside surprise in the initial jobless claims for the past week of 228,000. The interesting thing is we also saw an upside revision to the prior week, and I keep going back to this because it's substantial. We're talking almost 50,000 Uh, jobs that were not accounted for in terms of initial jobless claims last week that was revised and put into the data. So just a sense of ongoing softening. You talked a little bit, Carl, about how it's going to feel painful and the soft landing concept is really not in the cards right now. What is a historical analog in terms of periods of time that we can look to for some sort of template of what this downturn will look like?
5: Well, that's actually a very interesting uh, point uh, that that I was hoping you'd bring up, and uh, I think the... Maybe interesting parallel is Continental, Illinois. And you're saying, what? You're wrinkling your brow. Uh, And for good reason, right? Continental, Illinois was a, a bank failure in 1984. It was the biggest... Bank failure in US history up to Washington Mutual uh, in 2008. Uh, And of course, as you know, there was no great recession in 1985 or 86, right? We went on till 1991 uh, before there was a recession. So, John, yesterday on the show, was talking about the long and variable lag of banking crises or banking stresses uh, as opposed to monetary policy. Uh, And I think that's very important. People don't remember continental Illinois. The Fed continued tightening. Uh, raising the interest rate uh, a- after the fact, and the economy did not succumb into recession. So when everyone is just universally saying we're heading into recession because of the banking stresses, uh, you know, then we have to put on our contrarian hat and just think a little bit more creatively. But that episode tells you it's not fait accompli that we're heading into recession. That being said, even before the bank stresses, uh, our view was the Fed is whether it's the banks doing it or the Fed, we have to tighten policy to a point where we start to break the labor market, and that is recessionary.
2: wonderful as always. Thank you so much. It's been too long. Carl Cardano of BNP Paribas. Uh, We always appreciate his insights. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg.